Welcome to Everything Life Coaching with John Kim and Noel Cardo, founders of Journey Coaching. If you're inspired to begin your own life coaching practice or just want to learn a little bit more about what it's all about, visit journey.co. That's J-R-N-I dot C-O. Hey guys, on today's episode, we're going to talk about how to coach your clients through expired relationships. Noel, good morning. Good morning. So Noel and I have this thing where um, sometimes we'll say things that uh, are kind of funny or interesting, and I always say, oh, that's a t-shirt. And of course, we never actually make it into a t-shirt, but Noel was running a little late this morning, and she said, um, making the thing. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that's a good t-shirt, just making the thing. Flash <laughs> across your chest, making the thing. It could be a baby, it could be a business, it could be whatever. It could be the podcast prep template. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. But uh, I think everyone should be making the thing, whatever their thing is. I agree. One day we really do have to do that t-shirt line. And I have a request. I would also like there to be socks. Oh, socks. Yes. Socks. With, um, we have, so, I, I mean, uh, we, we have so many sayings and we never track them. <laughs> so, I mean, probably hundreds. At this point, I would say so. I would yeah. say so. Well, let's talk about uh, expired relationships, aka breakups. Yeah, breakups, divorces. And, you know, even when we're talking about this, deep friendships are in the mix. Sometimes mm, yes. those guys expire. And when we're talking about relationships, expired relationships, whether it is platonic, romantic, a divorce, whether you have one partner or multiple partners, the foundation of it all is, of course, anthropology. How did we get here? And mm-hmm. brain chemicals. We cannot separate ourselves from our brain chemicals. Yeah. Th- this is why it's hard. This is why um, I think going through an expired relationship can be um, you know, uh, some of the, it could be the hardest thing you've ever gone through for many. Absolutely. And that's real. I remember after I got divorced, it had been several years. I was dating somebody new. I was happy in my life. And I sat for um, a class on neurobiology that covered what happens to your brain and body when you go through a divorce. And Mm. it was like waves of awareness crashing for me. Ooh, ah, why didn't anybody tell me this when I was in the throes of it? So I could have made a little bit better sense of what I was experiencing. It would be so helpful if we got to see via like an x-ray or MRI, all the stuff that's happening in our brain. So we could actually, you know, so we don't think that we're crazy. Absolutely. And I can't say that enough. If you're going through something, if you're going through an expired relationship, guys, it's not you, it's your brain. And that is why we are here today to demystify the process and to give you some actionable tools so that you don't suffer needlessly. Yeah. So I guess we're going to start with uh, research based on Helen Fisher. Yeah. Helen Fisher is one of my favorite experts in this area. And the reason that I like Helen Fisher is she really traces the science behind relationships from an anthropological and neurobiological perspective. So understanding, you know, humans, we're an animals, we're a species, we've evolved. How did we get here? Why are relationships set up? the way they are in modern times? And what does this mean for us in terms of how we experience our brains and bodies? So 
you know, I think the first thing that is really important to understand is the role of sex. When sex enters a relationship in 2020, everything changes. But this was not always the case. Before there was agriculture, when humans were still roaming around in little pods or tribes, sex was relatively promiscuous. Paternity was not a concern within different social groups. And in fact, having sex with lots of different people actually strengthened the bond of trust in these social groups. There wasn't jealousy. It actually created social equilibrium and sex was playful. So it was like you would wake up and as you're going throughout your day, um, you would probably naturally just have sex with various people that you connected with. Absolutely. Or flirt or form, (laughs) you know, kinship bonds and a a totally different experience. So, you know, how does that compare to where we're at today? Yeah. I mean, it's so, so, you know, we're talking about biology and um, wiring and uh, uh, all of, you know, physiologically, like um, how we uh, function as creatures. Um, And I, I wonder, so with today, uh, obviously it's not like that. I mean, it's like that for maybe some, but for the majority, it's not. And what do you think is different? So you, do you think it's just um, society, culture, uh, you know, um, rules and labels and all of that that changed over time? Yeah, uh, kind of all of the above, um, you know, really understanding how and and when things changed, longer pair bonding between two individuals started taking place about 1.8 million years ago in the glacial ages. And this happened because um, there were, were a lot of environmental stresses going on, low temperatures, nomadic movement, people were moving longer and longer distances. It was more difficult to acquire food. Um, there were greater threats to babies. Um, there was delayed maturation. Um, there was longer dependence on adults to raise an, a single child through adolescence. So when we moved from um, this way of being where there were many, many, many people caring for lots of little people to, oh, wow, one or two people really has to keep an eye on one kid and raise that kid. Um pair bonding became necessary for survival. And that really set the template for for serial monogamy, which is actually the way that humans exist most of the time in the world is a serial monogamous. And um, then with the intersection of the development of culture and religion, the way that puritanical, um, Catholic, Christian, Judeo-Christianity kind of developed, um, even, you know, looking at lots of different religions globally, the body sex became kind of a battleground for sanctity. And that's how property began being passed down through generations. And so all of that really played into the way that we developed as a society. Uh, It's important to note, though, that all of that stuff really runs counter to the way that our brains were originally hardwired. So here we are once again with these motivational loops that do one thing and the rules and structures of society that do another. 
Well, let me ask you this, uh, because, you know, of the, uh, the giant jar that, uh, that we've been poured into, uh, now have we, uh, you know, have we changed, have, has our, have our brains changed? A little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah, they have, they have. So one of the things that began happening to humans is that emotional closeness started showing up as more important than sexual union for keeping those long-term relationships in place for child rearing, for passing down property, um, for societal development. And this is uncontrollable. It's involuntary. And it also, the part of your brain that grows emotional closeness is based on verbal communication. And interestingly, it's the same part of your brain that responds to chemical and opioid addiction. So thinking about this, okay, so we grew the part of our brain that tosses in emotional closeness with pair bonding, keeps long-term relationships together. So when a long-term relationship ends or a relationship ends, that's the part of your brain, not the sexually motivated part of your brain that lights up with all of those pain centers and it actually feels like drug withdrawal. Well, this is also why uh, love can be an addiction. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Um, But, you know, it's important to really specify how and what we're talking about. Healthy emotional closeness based on long-term pair bonding isn't actually addictive. You actually have to do a lot more work to keep the excitement going, but the chemicals that come into play with romantic love, that stuff is addictive. That lasts only 12 to 18 months and it's ecstasy um, and fulfillment. And um, that's what gets addictive. And that is the reason why humans become serial monogamous, because they're constantly chasing their tails to get that high from romantic love. Yeah. And then when, you know, relationships become hard, many um, go find the dopamine again by uh, breaking up with someone and, and then chasing after that honeymoon period again. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I'm glad you brought up dopamine. It's important to just have a cursory understanding of the chemicals that are in play when we're talking about romantic relationships, long-term relationships, and how they work and what they do. So dopamine mediates desire, arousal, um, and guys, this is the same thing that your phone does with dopamine, desire, arousal, the drive Mm. to continue once the activity begins. Sound familiar? Um, And so when you get hit with romantic love, these dopamine levels rise. Um, It goes right alongside of neuroforenephrine, which is arousal, exhilaration, excessive energy, that boost that you get when you have a crush on somebody. Um, You might have a loss of appetite. And then there's cortisol and that's your stress hormone. So if you're in a good, healthy, emotionally pair bonded relationship and you're separated from your romantic partner, your stress levels rise. Mm, Right. Right. And then, yep. And then we have serotonin, which decreases when you fall in romantic love and that's your regulator. When you have a crush on someone, these are some of the memories that I have. Um, and then, um, that moment where you actually have the courage to kiss them and then they kiss you back. Your brain is going crazy. That's where the, uh, 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 nor, nor, I can't see that. Norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Um, mm-hmm. 
is that when that is kind of uh, coming out? I mean, is that is that the stimulant that's happening? Yeah, absolutely. It's derived from dopamine. It's derived from dopamine. And that's when that starts kicking in. And so, you know, as we're thinking about this and we're thinking about our clients and ourselves as we're going through our lives, it's like, wow, our outside relationships manipulate these hormones like crazy. So the the big bottom line here is understanding that romantic love is actually not an emotion. Romantic love is not an emotion. It's a motivational system that is hardwired into the nervous system that enables a suitor or a partner to build and maintain an intimate relationship with a preferred partner for the purpose of raising a child, maintaining property, maintaining society. That's where we're at. Yeah. Let me ask you this. This is another layer um, because our love experiences when we're younger, for example, in our 20s in high school, you know, because our hearts are just powdered snow, um, that imprint, uh, a breakup then or an expired relationship then, I would assume um, affects us more and, and we remember that more than, say, you know, when we're in our uh, 30s and 40s and we've been through uh, broken hearts many times. You know? Well, I, I'd say yes and, and, and I would qualify that in a couple of different directions. So when we're young, um, all of those brain chemicals, especially um, dopamine, cortisol, they fluctuate really wildly and rapidly. And serotonin, the regulator, you know, bounces all around, toss in technology, phones, video games, you know, you have a ball game. But when we are older, and we have the emotional maturity and gravitas to really deepen within a relationship. And we grow the part of our brain that is responsible for pair bonding. Um, and that relationship ends. It is far worse than when we're young because oh, that, um, that gripping anguish feels like you're withdrawing from drugs it's really really bad yeah i guess i mean because i'm i when i play back my story um i felt like the early love was the crushing and, and when i say early even in my 20s and late 20s um you know and even my divorce like those breakups for me were the most devastating than than the breakups in my uh you know late 30s mid 30s yeah 30s. yeah yeah, and 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 you know, and and who knows? It, it could be that um, that those relationships never truly got to the place um, where your pair bonding was deeply stimulated. It could be that you were surfaced with mating drives, lust, attachment, um, because that would do it, um, and that you know now guard your heart because. <laughs> Because, because, you know, you'd be in for the real tidal wave at this point in your, in your evolution. Or it could be that I don't have a heart anymore. And so that's why oh, it is. <laughs> but um, also being codependent early on. I mean, that was a factor. Mm. Too, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The two main mating drives are, are lust and attachment. So lust is the craving for sexual gratification. And that evolved to motivate individuals to seek sexual 
union. So that's what you were experiencing in your younger years. And then attachment evolved to enable our ancestors to live with a mate long enough to rear a child. So that would account if you were codependent and you were experiencing that withdrawal there. Yeah. So humans are actually serial monogamous. Yes, like, they like, are. Like um, penguins. Penguins, foxes, robins. Um, and there's a really important time frame here that blew my mind when I learned it. And for the human species, most humans pair bond. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule and things change and humans are evolving. But most humans um, pair bond for a period of about four years. Oh, interesting. And why four years? It's the most regular pattern of birth spacing throughout the history of all cultures. And it's also the mean duration of all marriages, relationships that end in breakups and divorce. Yeah. You know, when they talk about the seven year itch, do you think mm -hmm. that is, that is, do you think that's a myth? Do you think it's more like three to four years? Cause I, I think that's when people get very itchy and things get hard and people start drifting and, and also uh, maybe chemically, even in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Four years. So, um, and so when, when you fall in love, those, that chemical boost called limerence or new relationship energy that lasts 18 to 24 months. So that's why most people have a baby around kind of the two-year mark. You'll see people getting engaged or married or have a baby around that two-year mark. And then um, those chemicals wear off, the kid is viable, the four-year mark comes up, and that's a lot of times when relationships end. Um, it's also important to understand if, if you're a woman and you're on birth control and you are dating during that period of time, your sense of smell will be inhibited. And if you then come off of birth control in order to try and get pregnant with a partner, um, your sense of smell be, may be affected seriously and your body realizes that you're not a good genetic match with that partner. In um, sexuality land, we see a lot of people in um, couples therapy because all of a sudden I've come off birth control and I'm not attracted to my partner anymore. What's going on? You're actually not a good genetic match and that's what you're experiencing. Right. Um, I think this sentence is going to make people double take when they hear it. Cheating is hardwired in human culture. Cheating is hardwired in human culture. Th this, whoever's listening to this right now, uh, it sounds like uh, the nail screeching on a chalkboard. <laughs> what are you talking about? Cheating is hardwired. Yeah. So, I mean, really, like, let's break down the science. We've just um, been going through the fact that we're subject to motivational loops. Um, relationships tend to last about four years before people start looking around. The limerence period where you're happy with a new partner lasts 18 to 24 months. Um, we are not built for long-term monogamy. Long-term monogamy is great. However, it is a thing that needs to be consistently and consciously worked on. And, um, and cheating, the, the term cheating um, is experienced differently in different cultures. You know, even just looking at the juxtaposition of, you know, some countries in Europe versus the United States, affairs are seen as a natural normal part of life versus you know us culture where it's the end of the world 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Part of it is cultural. And also, I got to say that, you know, um, it's not just men. 50% of women admit to having affairs. Absolutely. And that comes back, you know, it's a, it's a mating strategy for men, um, to have variety and perpetuation of the species. And for women, it, it often goes back to those emotional needs that claudate nucleus, the part of the brain that grows with pair bonding isn't being satisfied. Yeah. So monogamy is a choice and, uh, it is difficult. It goes against, uh, biology. It is. Something, it does. Yeah, you know, it's something that we have to build and and we work on, and we wake up every day uh, choosing to be monogamous, and and this is why relationships are hard, especially as uh, more years are you know under the belt. Exactly. Very much. And so, you know, taking all of this into account, when you have a client or you are going through a breakup or a divorce, you know, step one is understand that your Brain chemicals are scrambled. You will not be able to make sense of your reality. You will be subject to all sorts of crazy hormones and emotions that are just going to start flying everywhere because, you know, this this touches on these very hardwired um, emotional loops where you're trying desperately to preserve um, your sense of stability in the world. Um, Attachment, codependence all plays in, um, and there's no way to get through it gracefully, (laughs) unfortunately. No, absolutely. So there's, um, you know, there's stages. And so um, stage one is the protest. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. When when you start to sense uh, a partner slipping away, or you how you're really just actually facing the end of that relationship, um, that pain center, that pain center that it, you know we share with cocaine and opioid addiction, that gets activated. It's the caudate nucleus, and that causes restlessness, nostalgia obsession, letter writing. People are intensely focused and alert. You feel a little bit, you know, nutty, um, panic, stress. Um, you know, guys, this is a really good time to hide your phones. Don't go near your partner's laptop, you know, just step away from the machines because you will drive yourself bonkers during this period of time because you have cortisol kicking in, more dopamine and norepinephrine are flooding your body, um, and that serotonin is dropping. So your regulator is kind of out the window. Yeah. And then stage two is uh, the despair and uh, resignation. It's a, this is the depression, the low levels of dopamine. Um, this is the uh, eating the chips and binging on Netflix on the couch. Oh yeah. And, and this is real. This is real. And so, you know, from, from a coaching perspective, it's understanding that your client is going to go through these stages, protest, followed by despair and resignation. This is normal. And men are more likely to engage in anger, reckless behavior. Um, women, are more likely to withdraw socially and have the need to retell their story over and over and over. Whenever I have a female client who is going through a breakup, I usually recommend um, that they pause coaching and go to talk therapy for a period of time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they need to um, to talk and to let it out and to say things over and over. They need to sit in it for a while before they can actually move forward. And so, a coach for a coach that may be frustrating. That may be they may feel that they're not getting anywhere anywhere with the client, but the client actually needs to uh, maybe go to a therapist for a while. Absolutely. And, you know, and this is not gender specific. So, you know, it would be really great if if men got super comfortable with retelling their story over and over again. And, and I posit, I hypothesize that um, the fact that women tell their story over and over again more has more to do with gender norms than it has to do with wiring. Mm, interesting. Yep. And Um, it it really works. I had a really good friend who was going through a breakup and kind of, you know, knowing this science, I went to her house and I just said, hey, listen, I'm going to sit here while you repeat yourself over and over and over again. And she looked at me and then did it and felt so much better. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the bottom line is it takes time to heal and and love rejection um, can take I don't know, 18 to 24 months. Uh, and, and that's, and I think that's a generalization, you know, um, but it's, it's different for the individual. Um, but for things to subside uh, and, and for brain chemicals to return kind of back to normal and 18 to 24 months is one to two years. And so a lot of people, you know, three months after an expired relationship or breakup, they're frustrated that, that they're not healing or over someone. And it's like, that's, you're, you're, you're <laughs> there's a lot happening in your brain. It's- Exactly. It takes a while. And, and so, you know, when we're talking about healing, when we're talking about healing from a relationship, of course, there's a lot that goes into it. And what we're really talking about are all of those chemicals needing time and space to return to normal levels through normal engagement and activity. And the, the variable factor that impacts the level of severity is the extent to which the couple was pair bonded through verbal and emotional support. If it was a very deeply attached verbal and emotional relationship, it's going to take the full 24 months. That's for dating. When we move on to divorce land, it takes two to four years. Oh yeah. I mean, it took me um, about five years just to get my stance, build a life, uh, you know, before I started to enter, you know, other relationships and yeah. Yeah. I remember getting, when I got to the four year mark, I was like, woo, (laughs) we're good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, the thing that I tell my, my clients when I'm coaching them through an expired relationship is, um, out of your head, out of your house. Um, I think when we're in our heads and, and especially playing back the, uh, highlight reel, uh, those images we're playing back are charged with emotions that then can drown us. Uh, but also out of your house, like exercise, you know, do the stuff that you've always wanted to do. And um, don't just stay on your couch um, thinking about the past because that's this quicksand. It is. And there, there, there are a very specific set of steps that can help us heal, AKA get those brain chemicals back to normal. And, um, you're absolutely right. Exercise, endorphins, um, helps regulate, gives you extra dopamine. If you're really feeling depressed, it's important to get to a therapist. Um, sometimes SSRIs, um, antidepressants can really mm-hmm. help with stage one of love rejection. Um, 
dopamine agonists help with stage two of love rejection. And then sunlight that yeah. stimulates your pineal gland um, and you know gets you going. And then good solid sleep um, helps you with that serotonin regulator. Um, yeah. And also nutrition. And what's, what's tough about nutrition is when we're feeling bad, we want to eat our feelings. And so a lot of times, you know, we're eating a lot of junk and then we feel worse. Oh yeah. And, and I would add here to beware of any chemicals that you might be consuming that are depressants. So alcohol, um, weed, um, other kinds of drugs. It's really tempting to kind of nurse your feelings, but mm -hmm. it doesn't help your brain chemicals that are already scrambled. So kind of going back to basics with a really super clean and healthy um, routine, feeding your body with things that are really healthy will help you during this time. They'll help you bounce back quicker. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. And Noel, thank you for um, all the wisdom and, and knowledge and kind of pulling the curtain back and showing us what happens in our brains and bodies uh, through an expired relationship. If you think that this uh, dialogue will help someone going through a, a breakup, please um, share this with them. Absolutely. And be well. Thank you yeah. so much, John. All right. Be well. Ready to cut through the BS of becoming a coach? Snag John and Noelle's six-step guide to becoming a life coach at journey.co slash everything. That's J-R-N-I dot C-O slash everything. If what you've heard here today speaks to you and you want to learn a little bit more about becoming a coach, visit journey.co, J-R-N-I dot C-O. We've graduated nearly a thousand coaches and offer vibrant community, strong lifetime support, and world-class coaching education. We're fully ICF accredited and look forward to watching how you use coaching to make a bigger impact in the world around you.